Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. We're back in the saddle together. (laughs) Been a while, baby. Yeah. We've been off together for like a month and a half or so, it seems like. Damn, really? Jesus. Yeah, I've been been tearing it up with the 9-11 Amerithrax investigations. But since you've been off, Abby, something really interesting has happened. We've suddenly both become right about Tulsi Gabbard and Cigar on Jetty. It's so weird because, I mean, our opinion hasn't changed on this issue for pretty much two whole goddamn years, but somehow we're suddenly right. Uh, and I'm getting all these messages and notifications on Twitter saying we were right and all this stuff. And I mean, can you explain what's happening? Did we dimension shift into an alternate reality where suddenly Cigar and Tulsi are talking about nuking China? Now the baby. <laughs> so what do you think is going on abby like what is what is happening here because i don't know i have not been paying attention so um what is there a dimension shift or has something else occurred i think the the layers of reality have begun to peel back a little bit it's becoming safe to talk about these things now whereas before it might have been a little bit more controversial because it might have gotten you in trouble with some of these other people's audiences that you were cross-polluting with. So I think that that's what's happening. I think that we're now seeing a more safe environment to really call out the people that we've never had a problem calling out in the first place because it was so obvious. I mean, if you're looking at someone like Sagaran Jetty signal boosting someone from a warmongering think tank, but not actually pointing to the fact that he himself is funded by the Hudson Institute, um, there's there's a disconnect there. And if you're finally, you know, understanding that Tulsi Gabbard is a rabid Islamophobe, but somehow missed that red flag a couple months ago or, you know, last year or, you know, back in 2014 when she was basically condoning torture, there's a disconnect there. So for me, I feel vindicated. I feel like we are completely vindicated, especially with the Tulsi stuff, because it just continues to get more and more extreme. Um, but, you know, my whole philosophy is welcome aboard. It's never it's never too late. I mean, it, yeah. it is because we're living in dire times. But, yeah. you know, I, I welcome everyone on board the ship and um, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I mean, I have no resentment or hard feelings. I guess the only thing I harbor a chip on my shoulder about it's just more an internalized sort of negative emotion where I feel depressed about the fact that like when people try to compliment me, you know, I get, I got messages like in the last couple of weeks were saying like, you were really ahead of the curve on this, you know, uh, cigar thing. You know, he's now like a huge warmonger on China. And I'm just thinking, I don't want to make anybody feel bad, but what do you mean he's now a warmonger on China? I mean, I guess it's depressing to think that you know, this idea of being ahead of the curve, it's just so obvious to me that it it concerns me. It really does worry me about the state of not just the anti-war movement, but the left to not call this out from the very beginning. And I don't mean savaging Crystal Ball or bashing her. I can understand why people, you know, treat her differently. But I mean, he is a Hudson Institute employee. He literally was like the, almost the whole time he was doing Rising. It's only like been a little under a year since he's left. So I guess that just blows my mind and scares me. The Tulsi thing is a little bit less worrisome because I understand more why people want to believe. I want to believe when someone says things you like to hear and drops all like the good sounding anti-war talking points, you want to believe in it. But I think, again, we're sort of faced with this dilemma where 
politicians have become more savvy, more sophisticated. Tulsi went on all the alt media channels that we all liked. It, politicians learn. They understand this stuff now. Ron Paul did it a long time ago. So I, I think what I'm the point I'm trying to make is just because a politician is saying something you like to hear, even if it's like radical anti-war rhetoric, don't let your guard down unless there's real substance behind it. I mean, it's really that simple. Especially when you know that Steve Bannon is plugged into this kind of alt media circuit and also was plugged into the Tulsi. I mean, tell, tell explain that. He fielded yeah, I mean, her he, for a cabinet he, appointment. Exactly. I mean, he's the one who tried to recruit her early on in the Trump administration. So I think yeah. a lot of this you got goes TDS back to kind of Bannonite. Bannonite uh, Bannon's a smart guy. And if anyone digs into his past, like he is a really fucking smart guy. Like he knows how to do propaganda very well. I will give him that. He is a very successful propagandist. He knows how to tap into the reptile brain. And, you know, who knows how much of Tulsi's whole facade was really propelled and fueled by Bannon, you know, kind of banning talking points and stuff under the surface. We'll never know. Yeah. Or just a sort of a, a neocon click of people who have managed to plug into like conspiracy and anti-establishment media. I mean, this is really crazy that John Bolton's like think tank front cutout operation called the Gates Stone Institute, they push like all this like weird conspiracy flavored alt media stuff all the time. And it always sort of is framed in this larger neocon framing, but they've been aggregated on Zero Hedge and Infowars for like four or five years. So it's like, yeah, there's some really weird stuff going on here with neocons and, you know, Steve Bannon reopening the committee on the present danger while pretending like talking about how much Hillary is a warmonger. Something's not adding up here. And this is how the new world works. And you need to understand that just because someone is spewing anti-war rhetoric or saying we support Julian Assange, it really doesn't mean anything anymore because they know, they know that's what people like to hear. I mean, that's what Trump did to get elected. So, I mean, come yeah. on. Yeah, it's sad how kind of bottom of the barrel the conspiracy culture has become where it just has totally shifted to like the most baseline right-wing nonsense, you know, and just because just like that whole knee-jerk contrarianism, like if CNN saying it, then naturally whatever Breitbart is saying is the truth. You know, it's like it's just so it's so sad. And I just hope that we can step out of that and still approach things with a critical eye. I think that your latest series on Amerithrax <laughs> and the 9-11 stuff that you did is a really fascinating example and a good example of how we can approach these things moving forward. You know, as a, a retrospect of the last 20 years, the event that is the premise of of this entire war, this nightmare that we're still living in. And it was really interesting because a lot of details were uncovered that I'd never heard before, threaded together in a very fascinating way. And it shows you that you can still do original reporting and investigative research on something as big as 9-11 without going down the tired tropes and, you know, I don't know, just going around the fucking mulberry bush of like the conspiracy stuff that we've heard a million times. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I, th I appreciate those. I appreciate the complimentary words, Abby. That means a lot coming from you. I know that you've, you know, this is a subject that's really important to you also. So I'm just happy that I'm able, I, I honestly, for the first time, I feel like to actually be able to provide our audience with truly original research on 9-11. I can't really say that I've been able to do that before. I've been able to do that with some other subject, like the Israeli art students, you know, thing. We got an original interview with that. We, you know, some original stuff with anthrax 
has been happening recently. But yeah, this 9-11 Florida event attack map research project, which is sort of the basis for all of this, really proved to be quite fruitful. And I didn't realize that it would be. It was inspired by Daniel Hopsicker, one of the better early 9-11 researchers who never you know, went down some of those crazier paths based on a, a Paul Thompson, who's another amazing 9-11 researcher. Really quickly, have you sent Daniel Hopsinger uh, this research that you've done? You know, I have been hesitant to because he and Whitney had like a weird public falling out. And it was all oh, because of her writing about um, some of like the Israeli intel stuff going on around that time. So for some reason, there is like a still a weird wall. There's a the truthers have always been, you know, I hate to use that word, but they've always been so divided, you know. That yeah. it's really actually hard to find people in the movement who are like not like full blown like the Mossad did nine eleven, you know, who actually will op- openly look at this stuff. And a lot of the people who uh, don't want to look at it, they think that any of that stuff like is can be framed that way. And I guess what I'm trying to do is be like, I don't, I'm not framing any of that stuff that way. I'm just showing you the facts. Right. The Israeli art students who are operating. In San Francisco, in the interview, you know, with um, Emmanuel, who who encountered them, those same groups of people were all around the country, and they happened to be really concentrated in Florida around the same time as the nine eleven hijackers. And that's just a story that really hasn't been like reported in the media. You do with that what you want. That's a fact. That's out there. So that's the way I'm going about it. I'm not going about this with any preconceived theories, other than we were obviously lied to about nine eleven, and the government's been severely covering up. God knows what. That's why I don't trust any of these people who are like, like you just said, like these declarative, arrogant statements that paint everything with a broad brush about 9-11 and then basically like, like lambaste other people saying you are a sellout, you're a shill because you don't say these things. And it's just like, dude, the problem with that is that you can't prove anything that you're saying. It's just a pissy contest at that point. It is. It's like. Yeah, it's like we get comments sometimes from people, and some of them are innocent enough where people want us to go further, and they're like, why don't you talk about this? Why don't you talk about that? Why don't you talk about this? There are so many different things to talk about in regards to just 9-11. If you want to make the case for why I should weave that into my larger research project I'm doing and why this is important for this, let me know. I'm trying to look at this as a slice right now because to me, it's, it just makes more sense. It's like Florida is in some weird way, the nexus point for not just 9-11, but also anthrax. You know, once you realize right. that, it's just, what can we uncover just with Florida? You know, Daniel Hopsicker did an amazing job with what he did, but there's so much more to uncover there. There's so many more threads to pull on, and that's what I'm trying to show. So, I mean, even just the one thing I'll spoil from, you know, so you haven't listened to it, one of the things I uncovered, and I've never seen this reported in the news or anywhere else, and if someone has uncovered this before, please reach out to me. But Rudy Giuliani's ex-wife, who goes by the name Donna Hanover now, she was living in a condominium in Florida, in Miami, literally in the building next door to one of the Hamburg cell 9-11 hijackers. I guess my gut feeling is that I don't think Rudy told his wife this, and I think he knows. I think even if this doesn't mean anything suspicious about him, which I personally think it does, but I think that someone let him know that, or that he was aware of this and his wife actually might not even know, his ex-wife. So if anyone's listening out there and wants to reach out to her and tell her this, be my guest because it is it is verifiable and I have quadruple checked this. And that's something just absolutely bizarre that I found while doing this research. 
It is really interesting, too. It seems like a really obvious point, but I guess until I listened to your episode, did it really dawn on me that the president of the United States is the only figure in the country that can authorize a shoot-down order of a commercial plane, which makes it just so much weirder that Bush was sitting there for like seven minutes Mm -hmm. without any sort of direction from his security team about like what was going on and these planes were flying around off course. It's just, it's totally unbelievable in so many ways. Really just raises a lot of interesting questions. And and so does just zooming out and looking at that whole timeline that Paul Thompson put together. I mean, he did an amazing job laying out the blow by blow of the day of and how Makes no sense. It doesn't even make sense why Bush decided to go ahead with an event at that school at all. Like no, it's crazy. The the seven minutes alone is pretty bad, but then like when you add on the thirty minutes after that he stayed there, it's just the whole thing makes no fucking sense. It's it is absolutely insane. Yeah, it really is. That one's in the Boca Raton, Sarasota Art Students Anthrax and Angel is next um episode of Media Roots from about twenty days back. Yeah, no, it's there's been so much going on. It's really hard to even figure out what we should talk about on this episode. But, you know, I haven't really been paying much attention to the news. I've been primarily focused on researching and traveling for our new documentary, Earth's Greatest Enemy, which we will talk about in the next episode. We decided we're going to do a whole episode just kind of covering the thesis of the movie. Um, check out earthsgreatestenemy.com because we are doing a fundraising pitch for it right now, a big donor drive. Uh, We really need to raise more money because we want to travel to the territorial empire, you know, Guam, Puerto Rico, and then of course the global empire, Okinawa, Jeju Islands. And really all of that depends on how much we can raise. And right now we're about 50% funded. It's an anti-imperialist intervention in the environmental movement. It is trying to drive attention to the fact that the U.S. military is the main contributor to climate change the largest consumer of fossil fuel, and the largest institutional polluter in the world. Uh, the case for this is extensive, and we we intend to cover it all. And it's a huge project and a huge uh, task to undertake, and we're ready for the challenge. Um, so we went to Alaska. We're going to Scotland in two weeks. So there's a lot, a lot going on. Um, I actually have not been watching news because I canceled my cable subscription. Good. So I am no longer, you know, just mindlessly consuming CNN and MSNBC as, as comical and hilarious as it is sometimes. It also is very infuriating. So it's been good. I've also been off Twitter um, most of the last month. So I have been a fucking tabula rasa, dude. I have no idea what's going on. I just kind of dove into the news, uh, you know, ever since I found out that Colin Powell passed away. So let's uh, let's get in there, Robbie. I know that we had a couple stories on the docket. Um, you know, I just wanted to quickly say that I was loosely following the whole Gabby Petito, Brian Laundrie drama that, you know, um, that Instagram couple who took that road trip and then she was strangled and found dead in Utah or whatever. And then Brian Laundrie goes missing in some big Florida expanse. And it was just kind of in the background because everyone was up in arms about why is this white girl being covered? What about all these other people of color who are never talked about and blah, blah, blah. It was like all like politicized, you know, like this missing person's case. And it's like, you could literally say that about any person that is propped up as a missing person or a person of interest or a murder victim. Mm -hmm. But what I just saw this morning was that Brian Laundrie's remains, quote unquote, remains were allegedly found 
But what's weird about it is that they may have been planted <laughs> because it was like right at the the entrance of this park that like search and rescue dogs were searching for fucking the last month. Like they found like nine other bodies apparently throughout this whole time. I guess they're going to do DNA testing on it, but it's just really crazy because I guess his parents are the ones who found the body like along with his backpack and other personal items. And they said it was a remains of a partial skull. To me, that just sounds crazy because how could a skeleton already have emerged with only a couple weeks of a decomposing body? So Alligator. the whole thing is super fucking weird. Yeah, I don't I mean, know, man. Is this the whole Florida? Thing's nuts. Yeah. We'll just back to Florida for a second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> honestly, like the amount of like spook activity and just like the creepiness of Florida, like now that I've like reimmersed myself in it. And I know like Mike is from Florida and like Whitney, Whitney grew up there and stuff. And like, I mean, I'm sure they have stories to tell about how weird it was to grow up there. But I mean, the thing I keep thinking about too is like how easy it would be to dispose of a body in Florida. I mean, what other well, state yeah. do you have really anywhere in the world? I mean, maybe in like the, on the Nile, you maybe could do this, but like where else in the world besides like parts of the African savanna and like in Florida Everglades, can you just like guarantee that there will be a carnivore that will devour a human body? Like, right. I mean, it's pretty, it's actually pretty weird because there's probably been some pretty, I'm, I guarantee you there's been a lot of mob activity, body dumps. Oh my in the God. Everglades yeah. There, you know, but anyways. No, totally. No, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I don't, <laughs> it could just be the case closed, you know, his body is his body sure. and whatever. And he just died in, in the way that they say it did, but it just is super weird. You can go on all day about how fucking weird Florida is for so many reasons. Like the whole town of celebration, mm-hmm. how it's like a, a corporate Disney town oh my that God, you live yeah. inside. Mm-hmm. You literally live inside of a corporate town. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll do that at some point. Orlando. We're going to we're going to set up shop there. Yeah, Orlando. Raise our kid. Orlando was never a big city and that's part of why Disney moved there. They did something that corporations actually are known to have to do all the time which is not talked about enough. Where a corporation will basically go in and take over a city to control the city government. Like this is what Apple did to Cupertino. This is why Facebook moved to Menlo Park because they know that once they become as big as they are now, they 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 rule the roost. You think Cupertino isn't taking like the Cupertino police? They they probably fucking take orders from Apple corporate. Like that's how yeah. that's how this shit works. So like Orlando and Disney, like Orlando was like by the balls from Disney from like decades ago yeah wasn't there some there was somewhere like in tracy or something that a corporation just completely bought like the local government and then i forget what what the actual yeah, story was I, I believe it i totally believe it oh you know what's you know it's an interesting fact i learned recently mm-hmm. uh, one of these suspected labs uh speaking of tracy uh for making uh the, the anthrax that went through the mail Battelle, they apparently were uh in charge of running lawrence livermore lab like they've been in charge for the last like 20 years it's like since it became like quasi privatized. So when we went there, we were actually like, like messing around with like Patel. Wow, <laughs> that a kind of a funny uh, like synchronicity, like how Lovely, obsessed I baby. became with the anthrax. Yeah, it's just I don't yeah, know. I thought that was funny. It's all connected, baby. It's all connected. Would you want to talk about well, pals? Powell's corpse. Yeah. Well, before we talk about Powell, I wanted to give props to my partner, Mike Krasner, for protesting Bush. I mean, this George W. Bush was in town. He was in Beverly Hills for a red carpet event and people paid $500 a ticket to go unironically watch this war criminal talk about the good old days, dude. Just talk about his life, talk about his tales, blowing up frogs, pissing on their corpses. 
Um, it was very surreal. I mean, I was outside protesting. You talked about murdering animals? Just, no, no. I was just making a joke. <laughs> that would be really good. But no, it was crazy to see like what type of people attended this in earnest. You know, it was like like people who just looked like they were like UCLA grad students and like young, wealthy like like suburbia style moms and shit. Like I thought it would be like predominantly old people who kind of looked like, you know, Barbara Bush or some shit, but it was not at all. It was a very surprising audience. And I'm sure every listener of Media Roots Radio saw that viral moment where Mike Preisner interrupted George W. Bush and talked about how he sent him to Iraq and killed a million Iraqis and killed his friends. And, you know, it was just a surreal moment because... First of all, no one has confronted Bush since he's left office. The guy who threw his shoes at Bush did so while he was still president, technically. And it was an amazing, heroic moment. But, like, no one has confronted this motherfucker on this giant speaking tour. He's done this huge media circuit talking about his stupid paintings, his books, his tree farming business, going on all of these talk shows. Not one person from the audience, not one person outside, not one person in these galas have ever done anything to confront him. And it's just, it's an abomination. And he's made like $30 million or something because he makes like an honorarium of like almost 200 grand every time he does something like this. So just think about the cash this asshole is raking in and just facing zero accountability. And so to see Mike do that was such an inspiring and motivating thing to make us remember, you know, we need to remember what happened because for Bush, this is a distant memory. He doesn't even fucking remember the Iraq war because it means nothing to him. But for everyone who, who died, their family, their friends, the people who are permanently disabled, the refugees, there are millions, tens of millions of victims from this war who don't have the luxury to forget. So Thank you, Mike, for reminding us this is what we need to do to not only the Bush criminal cabal, but to every fucking politician who has blood on their hands. And if you are a servant of the empire, if you are a figurehead that represents this genocidal criminal death cult, then you deserve to be hounded every moment in public. You should not get a moment of peace. I'm sorry, but you're a public servant. You serve the U.S. empire. And that's that's just the way I feel. That is the very least, because we do not have a system that ensures any remote sense of accountability for any of the victims um, of, of U.S. foreign policies. So this is literally the least we can do, is make these people's lives a living hell. Just like General Petraeus walking from his teaching job at like New mm-hmm. York or whatever, and people were just like, every day, David... Yeah. Every day, David, we will not let you forget that you are a war criminal. And that's what needs to happen. Yeah. The amazing thing is that, like you said, that this hasn't been done uh, since he left office. It's unbelievable that Mike was the only one to do this. Um, and it's also unbelievable when you watch the words Mike is saying, when he says the words, one million Iraqis, you killed one million Iraqis. That's when George W. Bush laughs. Like, it's it really does make you think that these people are sociopaths on some level it's too bad that the energy goes away when these people leave office because almost like that's almost the best time to get them and remind them they think they're comfortable they think that they can move on that's when they need to be reminded that they can't and i mean yeah hopefully this sends a message to george w bush and hopefully this causes more people to do it too and and mike inspires more people to go confront this motherfucker um, I didn't even realize beautiful. he was still speaking. Like I, I had no, yeah. I, I thought he was mostly just like, you know, 
doing these like sporadic events like go, you know where he'd be filmed at like the inauguration or right. McCain's funeral I had no idea he was doing these paid speaking gigs so I mean yeah 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 no we need to get we need to get plugged into these circuits because these people are all speaking constantly yeah. you know like Condoleezza Rice is like on the board of Dropbox and like all like what is going on you know and anytime that there's any sort of events that prop these people up or give them accolades or awards like people need to be there reminding them what they did um they can't just seamlessly move on to the private sector and just like pretend like they're fucking absolved from their crimes against humanity if the secret service is still operating to help bush because i I think they're supposed to I, i maybe i'm wrong but i know when people are running for president they get secret service protection i don't know i don't know if ex presidents do but i think it just also goes to show you know, the fact that Rania Kalik and I were able to get into that Hillary fundraiser and no one like batted an eyelash and the fact that Mike was able to get in, like, did he even use a fake name to buy the ticket? No. Yeah. It just goes to show how like penetrable this is. Like the secret service isn't like thorough enough or these people aren't thorough enough to like look up and make sure that there's not like people from the the anti-war scene, you know, on there. So that's, that's a good sign. I think, I think that shows that this can be done easily if you are willing to go the distance that mike did and have the balls to actually stand up and and like interrupt i mean that's that's fucking crazy that he did that i know it's like as much as i would want to do that it's like it meant so much more coming from mike because the people in the audience were booing him until he said you sent me to iraq and then everyone just shut up because it's like they didn't know what to do yeah um but yeah i mean i thought it was really powerful and moving of course but i think that the price tag that they put on these tickets tries to weed out as much as possible yeah. any like lowly um Bless member the of the public that's not a member of like the certain class so it is you know it, it's something that we all need to pool our resources together and and try to actually continue to do because it's very important and i wish that happened more for colin powell robbie oh, i was gonna say yeah he i mean think of how many times he probably did these milk toast events that were probably like really cheap too like compared to george w bush i bet you could have paid like 40 bucks to like shake Colin's <laughs> pal's hand and then like scream in his face that he's a war criminal if he wanted to you know like it's too bad like we missed the opportunity is what I'm saying I know with him and <laughs> good old it. rummy rummy oh, rumsfeld fucking too. rotten piss you motherfucking like war criminal it's like dude like I cannot believe that that was not part of the historical record someone just completely excoriating these guys at some stupid public event especially because Colin Powell is now being painted of course as a statesman, as this shining example of bipartisanship, because apparently he was one of those anti-Trump guys from the Bush administration who saw what a threat Trump was and wanted to run apparently as a Democrat. That's how bipartisan this guy was. He really was a true American, true red-blooded, uh, blue-blooded and red-blooded. He was, he was just a purple-blooded dude. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what's fucking I mean this the gross thing is he really was like part of like some like generic like lib psyopy type stuff too. Like I mean he endorsed Obama as this big stunt. That was like yeah. a really big turning point. That was like a, a sea change, I think. And and he was sort of trotted out there again, you know, as this bipartisan guy to like move you know, move this move things in a certain direction and he did it with the I mean, I really do think that he's partly responsible for Obama winning. Um, I can't think of another person who came out and endorsed Obama that made that big of an impact. Can you at the time? 
No, no, that was a big one. And didn't he speak at like the DNC too? Oh. Or am I misremembering? He, you know, I don't, that sounds like something that might have happened, but I don't, rem- I can't, I don't know. Yeah. So much shit's, crazy shit's happened yeah. since then, like the, the gun toting couple and the, um, the Kenosha killer. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. They speaking spoke at the, the RNC. It's just like, Did Kyle Rittenhouse right, speak at the RNC? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You go up there like with an AR-15 like on his back, <laughs> and like pretend to shoot like, yeah. like wait, did like, like, the just kid kidding. who did the stand in front of that like Indian drummer guy like the, the oh, can- yeah, um, Covington kid? Oh, wait. wait, that's fuck. Is See, that dude, real or am I fake? Am I imagining has that? Been, right, reality <laughs> has been so inverted yeah. that that was who spoke, not the yeah, it was Diamond and Silk, guy. the Covington kid, wait. Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't think Kyle Rittenhouse did. <laughs> and Lionel and Mark dies. Oh, and Lionel and Lionel and Mark dies. That's the new. That's the new face of the Republican Party. Holy fuck, man. Um, yeah, no, so I mean. Me- let me say some wait, stuff about. Wait, what? wait, wait, wait. Did Col- How did Colin Powell die? Did he die from COVID? Well, that's what they're saying. I mean, they're saying he died from complications from COVID and he was vaccinated. So I don't know. But if- as we know, every death is counted as a COVID death. Yeah, the even a shark bite. Money. <laughs> even a shark bite. <laughs> I mean, I don't even know, man, what to believe anymore. Like, yeah, like obviously, I mean, <laughs> we're, we don't have to go to the vaccines now, but it's like, yeah, I mean, if, if it's believable, I guess, that he was, he was an old dude. Um, you know, maybe he did die of COVID. I, I don't really know, but here's the... I guess the gross part for me is that, you know, he did one to me, one of the most horrific and effective things that happened during the Bush administration to get us into the Iraq war. And that was the UN speech that was like a carrot top style, like prop show where he holds up the vial and shows those like Photoshop, like early CGI renderings. They look like that sh- cartoon reboot that used to be on UPN, <laughs> like of the bio, <laughs> bio, uh, biological weapons, mobile biological weapons labs on rails and stuff. He was basically complicit in clinching the Iraq war by using the anthrax attacks fears, going back to the anthrax attacks, mm-hmm. as a way to get us into the Iraq war. I, and I don't think a lot of people realize that this is what happened. He holds up a vial of anthrax and says that the anthrax that was sent through the mail is this amount of teaspoons. And Iraq has this many teaspoons, basically saying they have like hundreds of thousands of more teaspoons than was sent in these letters. The Bush administration never had to come out and say that Saddam Hussein was behind the anthrax attacks. But this was Colin Powell there insinuating it in one of their largest public spectacles ever. And, you know, it's just I think that that's what he should be remembered for. It's not that oh yeah, this image of him holding up the vial, I think, you know, it is really uh, impactful and gross when you just see it on its own. It's like, yeah, he did that. But what does it actually mean that he did? And what he did was he dishonestly used the anthrax attacks, which came, the anthrax came from a U.S. weapons lab. He used that attack when they already knew that it came from a U.S. source as a fear-mongering chip to get us into the Iraq war. And I think that's what he should be remembered for. And that's how people should remember that. Not this, you know, Bush lied about WMDs. I mean, this is what how they lied and this is what they did. It is interesting because this is not, it's not hyperbole that like, oh, they, you know, they used anthrax and they exploited the anthrax attacks to generate the fear and propaganda about Iraq. No, that is exactly what they did in a very direct fashion. I mean, he literally held up an anthrax vial. I, I cannot stress this enough 
these events were coordinated and uh, rolled out in some fashion because why would they have done that? Why did he do this? And why do people give Colin Powell the benefit of the doubt? Uh, Apparently, there's this whole rewrite of his entire speech to the UN Security Council, basically, you know, on Slate and, of course, across this kind of liberal establishment media circuit. I mean, from the very beginning, Abby, ever since Colin Powell started to, like, become the first early iteration of what you would, I guess, call a Bush whistleblower— Because let's be honest, there's been several different variations or versions of what you may even consider like a Bush insider who has said they had regrets or they've blown the whistle. But Mm -hmm. in every instance, I think you really have to question the sincerity. I mean, especially uh, of all the people, Colin Powell's sincerity. Right, because he was very intelligent. He knew better. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Bush, you could be like, oh, he's a, he's a dumb cowboy, and he wasn't yeah. he wasn't responsible for engineering anything. It's like, well, what about Colin Powell? And Colin Powell claims, this is what he's, I remember, I don't know exactly his exact wording, but this was the narrative that you're referencing, is that he was like, it was one of the most, my one of my most shameful moments. He said something to that effect of that speech. Well, you did it. You did it. You didn't seem like you were ashamed while doing it. Obviously, we've questioned Richard Clark's sincerity in various ways, although people like to think he's a legitimate whistleblower. I question, too, Lawrence Wilkerson's sincerity about this specifically, because when you really hit to the bone, when you interviewed him, he didn't want to answer the question. He didn't want to, he didn't want to take any accountability for that specifically, and I find that really troubling. If he's wanting us to trust him as a whistleblower who's blowing the whistle on the Bush era, you know, he, he helped Colin Powell write that speech, and you cut it to the bone. You're like... Do you have any regrets about the fact that you helped him write the speech all about anthrax when we know now it came from a U.S. government lab? And his answer was, well, I don't have the clarity to say it like you did, and I don't, I can't say that. I wanted to say one more thing about the case. One of the biggest resonating factors, I think, in the speech was Saddam's um, anthrax stockpiles and bioweapons labs, considering the fact that America had just been traumatized by its own anthrax, anthrax attacks where five people tragically lost their lives. Why did you choose to hinge so much on anthrax in the speech? No, as a matter of fact, we, we winnered that thing to death. We threw tons of stuff out that we simply looked at and said, all this is is an extrapolation from 1991 or 92. In other words, we looked at it and said, the CIA has no evidence that Saddam has done what they're saying he's done. All they've done is made a linear projection. If he was producing six ounces, in 1991, and we knew that positively from the inspectors after the war, then he's now got 46 ounces because he could do two a year, you know, or whatever. That's what they've done. Of course, it came out that the anthrax came from our own bioweapons lab. Um, the final report from the FBI found no hard evidence linking Bruce Ivins to the attack. Well, I don't know that. And I can't tell you why I don't know that, but I don't know that. I don't know it with the clarity with which you just expressed it. That's what the FBI said. Uh, well, the FBI is as incompetent as any other bureaucratic entity within the federal structure, so... Right, but I think, I think it is pretty much conclusive that it came from within... I mean, the, the bio-grade of the anthrax came from within the U.S. establishment. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. That's the best he can answer for it. And I just think that that's... I guess from my perspective is we shouldn't give a free pass to any of these people, even someone who's saying a lot of things that are, sound really great, like Lawrence Wilkerson. Yeah, for someone to say, oh, Powell was really skeptical, it's not his fault the information was inaccurate. Well, f- 
for me, if you are skeptical, why the fuck would you go in front of the UN Security Council and sell a goddamn war based on faulty evidence? That is a pretty crazy thing to do if you're not 100% sure of the goddamn evidence. Especially knowing what we know now, it's like this whole concept of faulty evidence too. It's like, it is sort of like a false framing because we know that they cherry picked evidence. They knew from the very beginning exactly how they were going to try to pitch this. And they did it by like cherry picking evidence to create like a, a tunnel vision effect to make it seem like these were the facts. Well, when you omit everything else and you cherry pick only these tiny little things, then yeah, I guess you cherry pick one vague report about how Iraq had these stockpiles at this time that's like from some anonymous whistleblower, you know, random guy, but then you don't talk about all the other intelligence that shows that there's nothing there, then yeah, then I guess you could do that. But that's like, it's it's like faulty is even, you know, it's even a, a way to make excuses. It's, it's obvious they manipulated it from the very beginning. It was total lies. I mean, then they knew what they're doing. So Powell knew that process. He knew what was going on in Cheney's office when they were doing that with the CIA yeah. reports, when they were cherry picking things. He's not an idiot. So yeah, it's just it, it's just multi layers of not you know the bucks doesn't really stop with him. It, it, it was somebody else's fault essentially. Yeah, and when I was interviewing Wilkerson about this, there was a huge change in tone. It was a very friendly interview until I confronted him about literally helping Colin Powell write this speech. And I feel like he's never taken accountability for facilitating these lies that brought us into Iraq. And he was completely floored when I said that the anthrax attacks were an inside job. He seemed totally shocked at this information. Why is that news to him? After I talked to him about the anthrax attacks, he just kept saying, be careful. Like everything I said, he was just like, be careful be careful. And it was just like, be careful about what? Like, I didn't understand what was going on. You saw the raw, unedited version of that interview. Yeah. And it's and you very tried to strange. It. It's very strange. It's not like we tried to give him a free pass. We, You just tried to salvage it because the energy you said got really awkward. So, you know, in the interview that you released, it's just sort of a salvaged, you know, edited together version of the best you could with that weird, awkward energy that was sort of left <laughs> in the room. Yeah, I don't get it. That's how it was. I guess we could show people the whole raw footage if we wanted to. I don't really feel like we we need to. I think it's obvious that he didn't properly answer that question. His answer is inadequate. He dodged the question. That's all yeah. people need to know. All the other stuff, they could take our word for it or not. Look, like you said, he's not taking accountability for it, but that specificity, yeah, why does he not want to know more about the fact that the thing that was based on how they sold the Iraq war together in that speech actually came from a U.S. lab. There was no- It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Colin Powell is a real pile of shit. And the fact that he's sort of been this representation of like bipartisanship, you know, the bipartisanship of our foreign policy, it, it does sort of have that Robert Kaganistic flavor to it. It's almost like Colin Powell embodies like an op in and of itself, like a, to like change the psychology- of how we tolerate certain, you know, uh, wars in a weird way. Yeah, and make and the personification of like this bipartisan foreign policy agenda that is painted as a good thing. It's like, oh, he can seamlessly transition from from a rabid, mm -hmm. bloodthirsty neocon administration to the Obama administration. Like, what a good statesman! It's like actually that's a really problematic thing, and maybe you should ask yourself why is that that someone can do that? Um, that's not a normal thing. That actually is a fundamental problem that everyone agrees with the empire.
and with essentially all of the foreign policy decisions put out by the empire. It doesn't matter what line of the political spectrum that you are on. So maybe we should ask more questions about that. And just to drive this point home, let's just talk really quickly about his legacy beyond Iraq, um, beyond the Iraq War. All the way back to Vietnamese war crimes. I mean, mean, he he basically was tasked with investigating the My Lai massacre and tried to whitewash and sanitize My Lai tried to censor the real criminality of it. Uh, then moving on to Latin America, he was Reagan's national security advisor during Reagan's tenure, and he was one of the leading generals that armed, trained, and protected the Salvadoran military, the death squads that were responsible for slaughtering tens of thousands of people. He was also one of the leading voices advocating counterinsurgency strategies during the war, um, you know, the Salvadorian mil- military committed countless war crimes. But I think that one of the biggest crimes that Colin Powell oversaw was the invasion of Panama. He led the invasion of Panama. This oh is God. this is a country that is totally absent from the American, you know, American history. Basically, it's just we are riddled with historical amnesia. This is a really great example of it because basically as many people died as died on 9-11. There's still mass graves that they're uncovering today. Like literally today. Like you're not you're not just saying that. Not today. Like literally this year. There was a story from this week where they're out there now with tractors uncovering another mass grave they believe was was there from the the U.S. invasion. It did almost seem like kind of a Fallujah style. Like we're just gonna go in there and fuck shit up and get out. Yeah. And just run rampant. Yeah. I mean the bodies in the streets burnt to a crisp. I mean, the type of stuff that U.S. soldiers in the air, you know, support was doing at the time was, I mean, it was, it was uh, just straight up like a massacre. Pretty heinous stuff. And that was overseen by Mr. Statesman, Mr. Powell. Um, And I think this really says it all about what kind of man Colin Powell was, that when he was asked about, um, how many Iraqi civilians were killed in the Gulf War? Because he was also, of course, involved in the Gulf War in 1990. I mean, he was he, he was high up in the government. He was serving, I think, in the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And, you know, the highway of death, like all of these horrific war crimes, the sanctions that took the lives of over 500,000 children. And he was asked by a reporter. He said, how many Iraqi civilians were killed in the Gulf War? He said, quote, it's not really a number I'm terribly interested in, end quote. Al doesn't care about Iraqi civilians. He doesn't care about all the soldiers that were basically, you know, given these experimental drugs and maybe still are suffering from side effects today. His legacy is really actually disgusting. And it's like he did sort of, and I'm not just saying this because He's of mixed race like Obama, but he did sort of play the same role that Obama did in terms of like creating this bipartisan whitewashing of like our horrific foreign policy. And like things are okay now, sort of like a reset. You yeah. know, like Colin Powell's here to save the day. Actually, he might even run for president. I remember hearing yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He even got he even got like three electoral votes from like a state or something. Yeah, like, you know what's funny about that is Ultimately, it comes down to charisma and personality, and I just do not think he has this right. stuff. He's got this weird affect, not like appealing to people. He's not; he doesn't have it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, he's so Stay he'll, in I, the I don't military, think he would have ever dude. been. Able, yeah, Jesus Christ. Can I read one thing uh, that that I thought was really funny that I remembered of Colin Powell? Yeah, to put a cap on his legacy. Uh, the last like email leak 
that included anything from Colin Powell. There's been a couple over the years. Um, was one really funny one where he's actually talking about Hillary Clinton, right? Donald Trump and Hillary oh, Clinton, but shit. Clinton specifically. He says about Bill Clinton. He says, um, "Hold on a second, let me find." Oh man, I remember yeah. this. This is brilliant. This is from the Podesta leaks, right? No, it's not. It's really? from like another email hack leak. So he says basically to, he's, he's he's emailing someone back and forth about Bohemian Grove, which first of all is hilarious that in 2016, here's this old dude, Colin Powell, going all the way to California to attend like a camp out, like the, the Bohemian Grove. <laughs> and he's excitedly talking about it with someone else via email. And he's having these casual discussions about the sketches that he was in. He's talking about starring in plays in Bohemian Grove and like being enjoying it and having a lot of fun doing it. Lord, um, some of these plays, as people know, involve dressing in drag. They're they they have a very sort of um, queer themes to them. I mean, the, traditionally, a lot of people like Bohemian Grove in the back in the days were were gay, and it was a lot of playwrights and writers. And that theme continues today. So there's you know Henry Kissinger's in drag, you know, in pictures from back in the day. So I don't know if Colin Powell was dressing in drag, but he's talking about how much fun he's having, you know, in these little events. Then they start bashing Bill Clinton. And he says, I heard he's still dicking bimbos at home, talking about how he's like at 2016, uh, Colin Powell is venting about Bill Clinton as an old man still dicking bimbos, in his own words, at home, like behind Hillary's back or maybe even with her permission. I don't know what he's actually saying there. But then this is what he says about, he keeps going on about Bohemian Grove. He says, I was at Bohemian Grove over the weekend. Lots of guys in that same position. Few vocal Trumpers. NYC finance guys hate him. Wouldn't lend him money. He cheats and then sues. <laughs> and then he's like, Peter, he tell, this is someone else he's talking to about Bohemian Grove. I am back from the Bohemian Grove. Surprise, surprise. I sat next to Stephen Harper a couple times and had a nice discussion. Grove attendees know that Trump is a disaster. Most will vote against, but quite a few will not vote for Hillary and will vote for a third-party candidate. Strange doings down here. Otherwise, all is well with the pals. <laughs> and oh then the God. last thing he says is, Charlie and I chat. This is another email to someone else. Charlie and I chatted at Bohemian Grove. Great guy. Unfortunately, he was the only guy among 2,000 guys to wear a Trump red hat. We did not exchange views on politics. Happy face. I am expecting another contribution shortly and maybe more. <laughs> that's, that's Colin Powell for you. Emailing like several of his friends about Bohemian Grove, including like a female friend of his who's not allowed to attend. Yeah, the Grove. who's not allowed to attend. Well, here, let me, <laughs> yeah. let me put a cap on that cap, which is Donald Trump's comments on Bohemian Grove. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to leave that shit in there. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You mean Nixon's comments? No, no, no. Donald Trump's comments on Colin Powell. Sorry, slip of the oh. tongue, but I'm going to keep in that air. It's really funny. Um, so, so I really miss Trump on Twitter. It's such a shame that we can't see just this comical relief on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just absolutely hilarious. Like, I honestly thought this was fake when I first read it, but then mm -hmm. I realized that it wasn't. So he said, I don't even know where he said this. Apparently, he's launching his own his a new social media platform. <laughs> he <laughs> like, posted this from his website. I, he's he got a, his own website. that's like Trump USA. Wait, it looks like kind of almost wait a, a campaign minute. website. He posted this quote that I'm about to read or the fact that he's launching a social media network. No, no, no. I'm like 100% sure that whatever you're about wait. to read is like a written <laughs> wait, quote. It's not so spoken. Good. 
Wait, I know. So I think that better. he is oh like God. actually one of the rare moments where I think he just like straight up, it almost is like one of his tweets. Yeah. It's like he just is transcribing to someone real time and they're like yeah, typing yeah, out read statements. It, read it, read it. it says, quote, wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino. If even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans, he made plenty of mistakes. But anyway, may he rest in peace. <laughs> that is yeah, that is a hundred percent a written like press release that he put out. It's fucking amazing. I know. I mean, that's oh my. He still God, got it, dude. He still got it's, it. It's really too bad that Trump was. I mean, as 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 bull in a china shop, as wild card, and and as hilarious as. He could be. It's just t- still too bad that th- the people he linked up with were the people he I linked know, up with. Like I know, too the bad. Fact that it is really crazy to think that basically his presidency like was like some kind of op. Like, it's like well, it was like a Giuliani. total fire like, sale like, for like the most yeah. disgusting neocons <laughs> and like like in, like polluters and shit. It was like really yeah. crazy. What it's he like did. a divide and conquer like neocon like inner deep state war like power coup that we yeah. just like witnessed take place. It, and we're just like left trying to pick up the pieces ourselves. Yeah, I mean, he was a weird gateway into a very dark place. Perfect symbolism of just how how bizarre and surreal just our country is. I don't know what he's doing because like I'm not tapped into his social media shit. And so it's hard to know. But I think that he is like holding rallies. So we'll see where that goes. Well, I think he's only you know, the last rally he did, he... I think he like got booed because he started saying that he people should take the vax. Like he's still That's surprising. He doesn't want to let go because like he wants to take credit for the vax. Like that it's it's interesting about Trump because part of the wild card nature in him is that his ego does sort of like run what he does to an extent. So like that will always sort of override like whatever he's being like told or influenced to do. So if he could somehow placate his ego while pushing an agenda on him, it's like he'll do it. But it is it is funny to see the quandaries or sort of the weird pathways Trump takes because he's he's the one who wants to take credit for like the vaccine because of Operation Warp Speed. It's just that he didn't have a chance to because he like it came out like right after he left office. He shouldn't take credit for it, but it's like he want he really wants to. Therefore, ultimately, he can't just say it's bad like all the other conservatives like him say. Um, so that's to me sort of fascinating. Uh, that that's still his line. And then just another QAnon news. Ron Watkins is not looking good these days. He, he's still acts really bizarre. And I guess he thinks he can actually win a U.S. Congress seat. So he's I guess he's starting a campaign or he announced a campaign. I already mentioned last time he's doing that UFO leaks mm-hmm. website that hasn't gone anywhere. So he's sort of spinning his wheels. And then his father said on a stream recently, this is an actual quote, that you can't trust a plan that's anonymous openly discouraging eight coon users of his own, you know, that's the new version of HN, uh, users uh, to continue to trust in QAnon. He's actually actively discouraging people from being into it. So w- to me, it would be actually be pretty funny if QAnon somehow turned against them, like if the movement turned against <laughs> Ron and Jim Watkins. I don't even know what's going on with QAnon. I mean, I, I, I don't know how it has energy left, but apparently it still does. Well, yeah, it's weird. It's it's like they obviously have a concerted effort to pivot away from utilizing QAnon, even though they were most likely the drivers of it. Yeah. So that is interesting that Jim is making these comments here and there and that Ron has 
you know, if he was indeed QAnon, that they haven't posted since the election. So there was definitely something that they decided to do. I mean, it was definitely a missed opportunity. Yeah. You know, it fizzled out. I don't know where it's going to go, but it does seem like it doesn't matter because the QAnon community will continue to manifest into different iterations of what it previously was with or without the Watkins. So, Robbie, have you caught any episodes of Squid Game? It's the most watched Netflix show of all time, apparently. And I binged the whole thing. Uh, No, I obviously I've been hearing about it. Constantly see shit about it. And it looks uh, like the visual of it. I keep like seeing everywhere and it's sort of like the marketing of it's really good because I keep like imagining that visual of like the Mm -hmm. weird like costumes and the like the, like a weird mask with like an like a plus sign over it or something like <laughs> yeah it looks sort of like i could tell it's like an iconic thing and a the branding is is dialed in and shit and it's also like what is it south korean so it's yeah. it's it's on riding on that parasite wave and what's is there anything bad about it like is it is people getting it wrong like what are you like irritated by the way people are talking about it Obviously, that's the way I want you to talk. Yeah, I know. Well, of course, it's like one of those things that is so big that you have people like Obama and shit, you know, like just like Parasite, how Obama recommended Parasite. I like The Wire. Yeah. It's just like, dude, like how how do you not understand the critique here and how it like actually encapsulates who you are? You know, it's kind of like a self-own. So, I mean, I, I have good and bad things to say about it. I mean, I like that it's a South Korean production and I like that. A a non-U.S. production is the most watched, you know, uh, thing on Netflix ever. I think it's cool. Um, I thought it was funny that it's like very overly dramatized in the same way that like old Hollywood movies were in like the 50s and 60s, like just the way that they act in it. At first, it was an interesting critique on capitalism because it's like, you know, I'll just explain like the basic premise of it. It's It just exposes like how low people will go in the system that we live. Like how cutthroat can you be to succeed under capitalism? Um, Because it's just this like dystopian hellhole where a pool of people who are just gambling addicted societal rejects who are have nothing to live for. Right. And they're handpicked by this weird, mysterious agency that forces them to play children's games with what you realize pretty quickly is deadly stakes for them. Um, and so right away you realize that like they're kidnapped, they're drugged and they're taken to this weird island where all these games are, you know, unfurled for them. Stopping really quick. Have you seen Battle Royale? The the Japanese movie? No. I mean, it's, is it, is it basically, are, are they having to compete with each other when they play these games or is it more like a, the consequences of the game is mm-hmm. death, life or death? Well, that's the problem is, is, as at the beginning, it is just them doing the game themselves. So it's like, how far can they advance? And then like, they will die if they don't do certain things themselves. And then what becomes bad about it is that it becomes where they have to kill each other, which is just like, okay, like I just don't, it's just like one of those generic premises that just unfolds into like, now you're just killing everyone, you know? And it's, yeah. it's it, at first it was more interesting where it was like, would you be willing to sacrifice your life to win money? Like, how far will you go personally instead of like, will how many people will you kill kind of thing? And then it just be it just becomes unnecessarily gruesome. And I just felt honestly for a second, I was like watching like a Saw franchise. It was like a hunger. It was I mean, like, it just turns into a sound it like, was like a, vi- 
Yeah, but it was like way like more over the top than Hunger Games. It's just like really like, for example, spoiler alert, fast forward like two minutes if you haven't seen it yet. There's one of these quote unquote games, which isn't a game at all, where it's just people who have to jump from different panels of glass. One of the panels of glass holds uh, like doesn't hold your weight. And then another panel of glass holds the weight of two people. And so you don't know which panel of glass is what. And so you have to guess and jump over like 18 different panels of glass to get to the end. So like everyone fucking dies because they're all jumping on these panels. And it just like shows them like falling 10 stories and like becoming like mutilated on the ground, like over and over and over again. It's just like, Jesus Christ. So, you know, it's just, it's very over the top. I mean, I think the coolest part about it, spoiler alert again, is that the managers behind the game, like the whole time you're just like, why are they doing this? What is this all for? You think there's going to be like a really interesting critique that's uh, like philosophically like compelling, you know, at the end, like some sort of ideological drive that's like a really cutting critique on our system or something. And then it ends up just being they're just bored, rich people um, with no explanation whatsoever about why this is happening other than they are bored and rich. That it sounds to me like it's it's sort of like there is sort of a revival I noticed recently of just sort of like over the top gore. That's not like horror as much like Saw as much as it reminds me of more like Asian horror style. Like even like The Boys and a lot of these other shows are just like hyper gory for like just purely entertainment's sake. Mm -hmm. And that's just making me think of that vibe as you're talking about this. But go ahead. Sorry. No, I mean it it could be. That's the thing is like once – once you are just doing gore for the sake of just how how far can you take it, it is – it just becomes bland and like – I just don't respect it as much like artistically. I think it's a cop out and it's just like the easy way out. It's like how fucking gory can we make this shit? Like how over the top, like will this game be? And like how many people are going to fucking show like exploding and getting crushed? Um, But I mean, I will say that the coolest critique about it was like how it showed a bunch of American men coming in at the end and basically making bets on the players where to me, and I don't even know if this is what the director intended, that it like to me, it kind of, made you think or entertain the notion that like the u.s somehow is puppeting south korean politics and stuff or like the rich oligarchs in south Mm -hmm. korea are working on behalf of the u.s which is like true i mean given the country's disturbing history of basically being a military outpost for the u.s like it had a good like storyline it didn't really get explored and then it just is muddied and kind of generic in the sense where it's just this another dystopian horse show of course, sprinkled in with a bit of anti-communism where one of the players is a defector from the DPRK that's like risking her life to get her mom out of this communist shithole. Oh, you so. mean so Tim Pool's right? <laughs> what did he say? <laughs> oh, he just made like, you know, like his generic like clickbait videos with a giant like red and white oh, fuck letter me. block letters where it's like Squid Games is a, actually about is like actually anti-communist. Like, I, oh, I mean, my God. It's like, dude, um, whatever gets you that hits, dude. Yeah, man. It's crazy to see some of these clickbaiters out there. It's I can't wild, even imagine man. like what they're saying on a day-to-day basis. Like like seeing what that that Barry Weiss rant on CNN just got like totally viral and it was her saying like the most like dumbed down stupid culture war shit. I was just like, damn, like I'm so happy that I'm not just wading through mm-hmm. the algorithm like on a day-to-day basis of looking at Tim Pool's fucking YouTube feed and stuff. It just oh, you, seems really painful. Oh, I haven't. I can tell you what they've been talking about, Abby. They've been talking <laughs> about the Dave Chappelle special 
the reaction to the David Chappelle special for the last two months, like nonstop. It's it's a rallying cry now for people like Greenwald. It, it's it's the it's the biggest thing in the world. Yeah, of course, because you know what? It is the biggest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. The Dave Chappelle special and whatever he said, I haven't watched it yet, so I can't comment. But whatever he said about trans people on the special is absolutely the driving issue of our time. It is the biggest problem facing society. And I'm so happy that it's provided an outlet for the clickbait grifters to feed off of each other on both sides of the spectrum for this cyclical outrage campaign uh, that drives a lot of fucking ad revenue. It's it's very cool to see. You know, the sad part is the special is boring. It's like, let's admit it. He's been phoning in his special since he's gone on Netflix. And this one might be the most boring one of all. So wow, let's just admit it and move on. And that's, let's be done with it. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the biggest travesty of all is it was bore it was a boring <laughs> special. Yeah. It was a phoned in special where he just wanted to provoke a reaction. He provoked it and he got it. He did exactly what he probably thought it was going to do. And then all these right wingers just, you know, are being like, look at this amount of outrage. And that's, and that's what it becomes. It just becomes this infinite loop where everybody's talking about it. Why can't he do comedy? Why can't Dave Chappelle talk about what he wants to do? Comedy is supposed to be funny. You're supposed to be able to offend people. And it's like, dude, we already, we've gone through this a hundred million times. Why don't we talk about something that's actually funny and not fucking phoned in that he got like $12 million for like doing no effort. Why don't we talk about something that's actually like someone put effort into? I don't want to talk about this bullshit. It's boring. (laughs) Sorry, Dave. Your newest special is fucking boring, dude. And you know it. Oh, and RIP to Norm Macdonald. We didn't even... Oh, my God. God, how sad. He actually dedicated oh my God. his special to Norm. I just want to say my oh. one thing about it really quickly that Norm Macdonald probably was my favorite comedian. I, I can't remember the last time, maybe besides like Gary Shandling. And it just, it, always, it just happens to be another comedian that really sort of touched me. Like I was really, really sad for like a couple of days. Like I, I couldn't process it. It was... It was shocking, and and it was sad because apparently it was shocking for a lot of his close friends too. They didn't realize that he had cancer for like the last ten years. So R.I.P. Norm Macdonald, one of the greats, true true great artist, comedian. Never be another person like him ever. No, he really was a one one of a kind comic. I mean, I I honestly cannot think of anyone else who matches his comedic abilities because he literally could go up there with the worst material and make it fucking funny. I don't, I don't know how, and he can approach subjects. He could approach subjects that no one else could like a couple days after Steve Irwin dying and doing yeah. that whole bit about the crocodile hunter on John Stewart or just like constantly talking about Hitler and making it the most funny shit you have ever heard in your life instead of like played out nonsense. That's like cringy. Like, honestly, that was his funniest shit to me is like just derailing entire interviews and and about Hitler. (laughs) And like, it was like absolutely crashing shows. (laughs) You couldn't even be a guest on a show with him or else you would you would just it would just be him. And back to what you said about this, the Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter thing. One of the greatest TV moments ever. And yeah, Jon Stewart, say what you want about him. I think one of the funniest things ever was him saying Please don't do this to me. He literally, (laughs) like, he genuinely meant it. Like, he was on to, he did not want, and he couldn't help it. Like, he's like, please do not make me laugh about this. And he couldn't help it. I wanted to talk about the crocodile hunter. 
Did you? Because I think... Yeah, yeah you're yeah, going to yeah, make yeah, them yeah. sad. Because I think, you know, it was, it was tragic yes. at the time. But I think... <laughs> I don't know. People calling me, man, they're shocked. Oh, hey, you wouldn't believe it. Who got killed? The crocodile hunter. <laughs> don't, please don't make me laugh at this. This I mean, is not, this is like, not good He was do. 44 years old. I'm like, that's a ripe old age for a crocodile hunter. <laughs> that's not... Uh... And you know who had to be pissed about it were the crocodiles, because uh, he got killed by some fruity fish. And, uh, so, you know, you know, the crocodiles were like, hey, man, that crocodile hunter got killed. Who did it, Frank? Nah, nah you don't even want to know, man. Please, please don't do this anymore. This, this Yo, is Bill, man, you had a chance when the guy go, man, I had a chance. I had that mother... He was... He was Tommy with a stick. I could have eaten him and his kid. I don't feel good about this. I mean, that was that's an amazing TV moment. And then the fact that Norm Macdonald actually like cries on Dave Letterman too, like when he when he does his uh his goodbye set to him, like I mean, who else would do that? Like it was just so it's so real. So anyways, I just like to say I know that uh Mr. Letterman is uh uh, uh not for the mockish and uh he has uh he has no truck for the sentimental, but if something is true, it is not sentimental. And I say in truth, I love you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Norm MacDonald, ladies and gentlemen. That was very sweet, Norm. There'll just never be another person on TV like that again. Because he wasn't a TV guy. Whenever he was on, you knew it was going to be weird and interesting yeah and he always just kind of like dressed down he would always just wear like a big old sports sweatshirt mm -hmm. like never gave a fuck about anything like i mean just people should just watch the bob saget roast because that's a perfect <laughs> example of what i'm talking about like the shit that he says is so insane like no one was <laughs> laughing at it i think that like someone said i think tim heidegger or something was like they cut in all of the audience 100%. reactions of people laughing because it was so awkward because no one was laughing yeah. at norm Macdonald because his set was so bizarre, mm -hmm. but it was so fucking perfect. When you watch it again, it's like, for example, I don't even know if he's telling this to Bob Saget or not, but he's just like, I want, he's like, I want your brain. He's like, not because it's good, because it's never been used. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Bob, you have a lot of well-wishers here tonight, and a lot of them would like to throw you down one, a well. They want to murder you in a well. Seems a little harsh, but... Apparently, they want to murder you in a well, it says here on this card. No, I think that, uh, that Bob should join the Ku Klux Klan. And that's not because he's racist. He's not racist. It's just that he'd look a lot better with a hood over his head on account of his face. It's just the fun. Oh my god! It was devastating that he is gone. It's absolutely fucking devastating that he's gone. I had no idea that he was sick. He was one of those people that was so young still, 
like Gary Shandling that you just think you have all the time in the world to see him perform. I know that you saw him, Robbie, and I'm very jealous that you saw him. I know I that he was your favorite bit. comedian. He can never be replaced. I was on a little bit of a stand-up comedy kick for a bit. I've probably seen maybe like 20 shows total in my life. And I was going to him for a little bit, you know, seeing people. I saw Jim Norton. His set was was pretty good live. I saw David Cross, like Patton Oswald, All pretty good sets. But for some reason, it was Norm MacDonald that I wanted to keep seeing again and again. Because there was some, there was just this sort of weird, nervous energy that was like palpable about him and it's and it's not like oh he was like this you know he had this like awkward shtick no it wasn't that it was like his real genuine personality like i remember the first time laurie and i saw him at cops comedy club we first saw him behind us like in like in you know behind the audience like watching the opener that's pretty typical but then like we realized he was sort of pacing is he nervous like so it was just such a weird way to go into us to see him live is like is he ner- is he pacing around in the back because he's like nervous? Is this what he does to like prepare for his sets? So he's having these like weird these f- nervous feelings, you know, watching him, and he fucking killed like his he basically did the Netflix Hitler's dog set, but he did it like way better than the than the recorded set. Like it was like pr- pitch perfect, amazing set. I remember seeing him a couple more times after that, and like one of the times he brought a, a cocktail on stage and finished the cocktail like within like the first couple of minutes. But then like for the rest of the set chewed up every single ice cube in the glass <laughs> until it was empty, <laughs> like really slowly. And there'd be these really awkward pauses in the set when he would do it. And he'd be like, Hmm, what else? What else? Like he was definitely like winging it at times, but like not like it seemed nervous. Like it, it would make me really nervous like to watch him do it, but then he would mm. come up with like an amazing joke. He would sort of search his memory or I don't know. I don't know if it was stick or if he was really winging it or not, but it was, it was this weird sort of tension. And then I guess the last one that was just related to the podcast, incidentally, that was just really bizarre experience for me is um, Barry Crimmins, another comedian uh, that happened to come on our podcast. was a great guest. Uh, he RIP Barry Crimmins. He passed away like, maybe four years ago. But right after I interviewed him, I remember I was like hassling Norm MacDonald on, on Twitter, like about uh, doing the KFC kernel. Cause Norm MacDonald was the kid was the kernel for a bit. So I like, I like said some shit to him on Twitter. Like, Oh, this is why you don't like Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks said like anyone who does ads is like evil and stuff like this. So I was like, I was like hate tweeting like these, these tweets in Norm MacDonald. And then like two days later around that time, like it was like two days after I'd interviewed Barry on the podcast or we put out the episode about uh, where we interviewed Barry and I saw Norm Macdonald live. He just happened to be playing again at Cobbs and Lori and I this time got front row seats, like right around the stage. There's maybe like five or six seats right around the stage. And literally Norm Macdonald's opening joke. He looks straight at me in the front row and he says, anybody hear this guy, Barry Crimmins? Like anybody, you know who Barry Crimmins is? And I was, and I, I like, I, I like felt like this, like feeling of almost like I flushed. Like I, I, I like felt like, wait, what? Like, what is he? Why is he talking about Barry Crimmins? And he's like, yeah. So this guy, Barry Crimmins, he used to write, you know, uh, for the Dennis Miller show. And, uh, you know, I was writing for the Dennis Miller show at the time. And then one day he comes up to me and he's like, you know, Norm, I just remembered that uh, I got raped when I was, was five years old. And I, I don't know if I could write for the show anymore. And I was like, oh, Barry, oh, that sounds terrible. You should, you should go home. And then, and then he proceeded to do a 10 minute bit 
about how Barry Crimmins was raped as a child. I was just horrified at first by this bit. And then it evolved into a hilarious bit about how, and you know what? I don't even know if I was raped by my uncle my whole life. Actually, I couldn't even tell you right now if I was or not. Maybe I didn't even remember it. Wouldn't that be disturbing if you've been raped by your uncle your whole life and, and you didn't even know about it? <laughs> Any one of us right now could have been raped our whole lives as a child. Had a, had a grown man raping us in the ass as a five-year-old boy. And he just went on and on and on. But the whole crux of the joke was that the concept of if Barry Crimmins could sort of have this suppressed memory come up later in his life and then like it traumatized him and then he'd have to deal with it then as an adult, that like, why couldn't any of us confidently say that we have not been raped our whole lives and we just happen to forget? Like, that was, it was brilliant. I yeah. mean, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Just unrestricted. I mean, he really just went all out. There was no subject that he could not touch and make hilarious, you know, as extreme as it as it may have been. Yeah. That's the kind of comedian he was. And that really is a true artist. I, I can't think of anyone else who really could get away with the stuff that Norm Macdonald did. It's really shocking. Even just like the shit on Weekend Update, like about OJ, like oh during God. the heat of like the OJ trial. The Michael Jackson stuff, he would say. Yeah, and he just kept, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was pretty intense. I mean, and there will there'll never be someone else who did Weekend Update like him. He did it like a real newscaster. He had yeah, the news yeah, yeah. affect. Yep. It, it was it was brilliant. It it really was, and I wanted to give a shout out to Riley Wayland, who yeah. you know I know that she was really really devastated. She was uh, running the Norm Macdonald fan club. Mm-hmm. It's been a really hard. I was just going to say hard month. It's been a hard year. It's been a hard couple fucking years. We're losing a lot of good people, you know, and it's just Norm Macdonald was not one of those people that I was expecting to be gone. And it's just, it's a, it's a big blow. It's a big blow to lose someone who could really analyze this dystopian nightmare that we're living in, in like a way that makes you feel better. Even if we don't agree on the politics. Yeah. And I just wanted to give a really quick shout out to, um, a friend of mine that passed away that, that was a very, very close to a lot of people that I know. Their name was uh, Ashley Pearson, passed away last month or about a month and a half ago. I had kind of lost touch with them. And it was, yeah, it was very sad news to hear. Yeah, they were a brilliant artist, put out some amazing records. One of their projects was The Source of Foundation, and they performed at the cremation of Care Abbey. I think maybe you did you come to one one night of that or both nights of that? Of course. Yeah. yeah so so you you remember probably them performing. I don't know if you ever met Ashley, but rest in peace, Ashley. And yeah, and and check out some of their music out there um, that you can still look up. The Source of Foundation. That's spelled with two E's. The and of O V uh, and Foundation like F A W N A T I O N. What put the link in the. Yeah. Put the link in the SoundCloud description because yeah. that's a tough one. Yeah, it's really, really cool original stuff. It's sort of like industrial um, electronics. Some of the stuff they made was techno. They did. They had a solo project. So uh, check that out. I know we just kind of like got sidetracked into some sad, you know, talk mm-hmm. about about people that we've lost or well, I, I can't say we knew Norm Macdonald, but a, it was felt like a big it felt loss like to we me. did. No, it really did because we really grew up with him. It it is a huge loss, you know. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to get into so much more, but, you know, I'm just reminded of how fun it is to do this podcast with you and how the time flies barely covering anything we wanted to. But, you know, I did want to promote one more 
piece of entertainment that I just watched that I thought was really cool. So just really quickly, I just saw a movie called The Green Knight by filmmaker Dave Lowry. I watched it because just visually it looked like a Pan's Labyrinth type movie. It was extremely engaging and stunning visually. Um, It tells the story of Sir Gawain, uh, some old knight tale, I don't know, back in the fucking old timey days, which I typically traditionally hate old timey films and shows like Game of Thrones. But this was a definite exception to the rule, uh, my own rule. It was basically the story of some guy who's challenged to confront this otherworldly green knight. The guy looks super fucking awesome. He's really bizarre looking beastly man who looks like a tree and lives in this palace of roots. Who is like um, CGI? Like what is the... What? Dude, no. That's the thing. He's not CGI. He's like, a, he's in makeup. That's what makes it so good. Interesting. Okay. Um, it's extremely good looking. I won't give away the ending, but like, I just loved it. I was fascinated and I really liked the ending too, even though people are saying it's open to interpretation. It seemed very clear cut to me. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the movies almost like meditative, like this guy walking to meet this green knight to confront this big, you know, this end all be all like confrontation with this guy that he made this deal with. And the landscape is absurdly good looking. It looks very Icelandic. And it's just very cool, I think, to see movies made that take artistic risks. Because this movie could have been a huge fucking failure at the box office. It got very low audience ratings from Rotten Tomatoes, even though I don't jive with any of this shit from Rotten Tomatoes anymore. Um, but but it just was cool to see. It was It was a risk-taking endeavor, and it really paid off. And I thought it was just a really cool movie that is completely different than anything else out there. Well, weirdly, I just looked it up, and apparently, it's based off of a J.R.R. Tolkien book. What? Yeah. Wait, and I really? Never because it. I thought it was about. I thought it was based on some old scroll about like some weird fucking old poem, like in the Knights Age. It might be. I mean, it could be ba- like loosely based on that, but apparently, the yeah. Sir, it's called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm assuming it's it's the same thing. Maybe it's maybe it's not though. Maybe it's like a different interpretation That's of what you're talking about. Yeah, I had no idea that it was like a J.R.R. Tolkien thing. Cool. I'm guessing, though, it looks to me like it might have. Yeah, I, actually, no, it looks I see old books of it. So it must have been something he did put out called Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. I, I don't know. Well, and this is the first time I'm hearing about it. It looks I'm looking at pictures of the tree guy you're talking about. That looks pretty fucking crazy. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, So check it out, Robbie. I'm surprised you haven't. Have you seen anything good lately? Um. I mean, I I think probably the only good thing I've seen lately was um, I didn't even get a chance to talk about it actually. I mean, it wasn't good. It was, it it had. I mean, it was actually better than I expected it to be, just for like a DC Comics movie. But the politics in it bothered me. It was the Suicide Squad two movie? I don't know. If, mm-hmm. Did you get a chance to see that one? I did not finish it. I I watched the opening scene and then I yeah. we just never finished it. Well, there's a. I, I thought it was interesting because a lot of people are saying, oh, man, this movie's so irreverent. It's like anti-American. It's sort of referencing like the, you know, the Reagan era or like human experimentation done by the U.S. government. And it does do that. Like it ends up being that this like government that the U- that like the Suicide Squad is going to like um, like infiltrate is doing experiments on behalf of like some secret project, the U.S. government. Um, like, like, you know, like, like lie, like doing like terrible experiments, like on live human beings and stuff like that. But in, in all that, like the bad guys in the movie, the people who are like being killed and like blown away, 
for the most part, were people that were basically like stand-ins for like Maduro's government, like Venezuelan Oh, right. Government. Yeah, I remember you saying that. And the only reason I'm like 100% sure of this is because they like portrayed this sort of like Venezuelan militaristic, you know, group of people. They didn't say if they were communists or not. They didn't say what their politics were. But the flag was like a slightly rearranged Venezuelan flag. I mean, it couldn't have been more obvious. Um, and the outfits kind of looked like, you know, like the the military outfits they wear. So I just thought that that was gross. It's it's just what happened to just making movies about that happened in the United States and just show how bad America is like in here without making well, you like. You can't do that, dude. When you have Hollywood fucking intertwined with the Pentagon now, it's like you literally can't get any of this equipment or anything unless they like have final editing rights over your script. So. But then, but then it's sort of, but then you're sort of going into this woke era where it's like, um, you know, the main character in the movie was, was a black actor. It's, it's Idris Elba. And, you know, one of the other main characters was a woman's like Harley Quinn. What's her name? Margot Ro- Roby played her. Mm-hmm. Like it had a pretty diverse cast, but then like all the bad guys are like people of color, like Latin American, you know, a lot of them are black and it's just like, they're, those are the expendable, like, you know, like, I don't, not literal zombies, but like in a movie, it's like you just have these expendable bad guys and they just happen to all be like people of color. It's just weird to <laughs> see that in a movie where it's like we're in this woke era, but you still have this like, where it's a commentary on the Reagan era, it's supposed to be. But then you have in it sort of this crass Reagan era 80s, like xenophobia, like every expendable bad guy is just like a black guy or like a guy with like dark skin. God, I'm just so sick of it. It's like if I see one more fucking movie about Vietnam or Nazis, it's like, I'm, I mean, at least it was something different, you know? At least it was like somehow some critique on Reagan. I just can't handle it anymore, how unoriginal this shit is. I don't know. It's so boilerplate and just stupid. All these fucking movies churned out that are just the same exact. Oh, it's yeah. like, I get it. It's easy. It's easy. Yeah, Nazis. Yep, we all hate Nazis. Yep, clear cut where the U.S. was the good guy on that one. It's like, <laughs> I guess after that war, it became pretty muddied. Like even that movie Bridge of Spies that I've brought up occasionally, like that movie actually seems like more like challenging American foreign policy or like propaganda than like most of these other movies that come out that are like about right. war. Or, and, you know, like Stranger Things is supposed to be like how this anti-government thing and stuff. It's like none of these things are really actually – you even go back to him like a John Carpenter Stranger throwaway things. movie. It was all fucking anti-Russia stuff. Well, yeah, then the later seasons it was. But then yeah. like you go to like even like a throwaway John Carpenter movie, like that movie we used to watch all the time with Chevy Chase, uh, The Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I, yeah. It's actually kind of shocking how anti-CIA the movie is. Like the main character is basically just like a CIA hitman, like ruthless murderer who has like no remorse or like emotion and he's openly a CIA. Like they don't call him like from a special division of like right, right, right. the secret, like secret to whatever he's CIA guy. Well, I do think that after nine 11, there was willingly or not, there was definitely like a, an effort um, to like pledge allegiance to like <laughs> this government and like, like a Stockholm like, syndrome, you know, it really was. And it like really, it just permeates throughout all aspects of our culture and like arguably i mean even though you have the corporate media like acting as stenographers for the national security state and the and u.s foreign policy establishment it's like hollywood and the export of our culture in terms of like artistry is so much more influential and damaging and like the fact that no one really took risks and it's like who fucking cares that you're not going to get like tanks and fucking b-52 bombers or whatever it's like Take fucking risks, dude. Like, make a cutting-ass critique 
on this fucking criminal government? How bad does shit have to get for you to really take a stand um, as an artist, as a director, as a writer? It's like, I mean, I guess writers probably do all the time, but they just don't get their shit done. But yeah, it's pretty it's pretty alarming when you look back at the last 20 years and like every movie that could be remotely looked at as some sort of anti-war current, it's like primarily probably about soldiers. You know, it's like the soldiers experience, not not the policymakers or the fucking war criminals who like lie, lie about all this stuff. Even the best anti-war movies are are about the soldiers experience. And, you know, those are the those are the most cutting ones. I mean. You'll never, you know, like why can't somebody just make a movie as simple as some of the stories that you and I have probably even heard from people that we know who went to Afghanistan or people that, right. you know, like peripherally that we know who went to Afghanistan that were, that just describe horrible things that just sound, make it just sound like it's like fear and loathing in Afghanistan. I mean. Yeah, dude, why did someone should do a movie on the war criminals that Trump pardoned, like what they did and have like a fucking like like first person's perspective going like, okay, so we saw a squid game, right? It's like the most grotesque, gruesome shit you'll ever see. Like, okay, let's see that with real actual crimes that were committed on behalf of us soldiers. And then the end of the movie is they were all pardoned and let go and sanitized by the media. It's like, I would, I would love to see that movie because that's fucking real life. And that's what I try to do in an American bisque, you know, as, as intense and as, you know, kind of graphic as it is, there's a, I don't know, 10 minute long section in American Bisque and I uploaded it to Vimeo recently if anyone wants to watch it, where it's just all American soldiers uh, killing and torturing animals in Iraq and Afghanistan for a straight 10 minutes. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. that much footage of them and none of this was necessary or because they needed to do something. It's just all for fun. They're shooting dogs, laughing at it. They're blowing up dogs, throwing dogs off cliffs. Uh, shooting a, a flare into a, a herd of sheep and laughing about it, beating to death a, a goat over the head with an aluminum baseball bat as a group and Good just God, laughing dude. hysterically. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that happens. And, you know, honestly, the the person that I sat with the longest and told me their story about the Afghanistan war, to me, it just sounded like from the most part, them and all the people in their platoon had somehow been so unsupervised or they had so little supervision that they were able to shoot intravenous drugs for almost the entire time they were there. And they were all hooked on different barbiturates, morphine, whatever they can get their hands on. And they were all smoking weed because a lot of Afghan farmers just have weed growing around too. So all these soldiers can just can hash and weed. And, you know, when you're on all that drugs together, like a lot of these soldiers are super young. They, they can't handle their drugs. So I mean, who knows? No, it's like it's like herd mentality. Yeah, yeah, it's like total herd mentality, and also like people were probably like bullied, and like even if you weren't like this, you were just like the weak link. Yeah, there's no way to romanticize, you know, like Vietnam. You can romanticize and play like funky rock music in the background with like Vietnamese prostitutes, like you know, in Full Metal Jacket. And there's a romanticization to like Mike talks about this. So there's like Mm -hmm. a romanticization even to like the the dark anti-war stuff like deer hunter or full metal jacket Mm -hmm. you can't romanticize someone lonely in afghanistan shooting up morphine from their medic kit uh, and with nothing to do like there's literally no one around it's it they're in the middle of nowhere and then going on these patrols where they basically just encounter kids and farmers and harass them all the time while probably like opiated as fuck like a 20 year old kid who just shot up like morphine well yeah no that that was one of the guys that i talked to for empire files he was his name's john motter he was a marine and he was just like 
we were specifically told to guard the crops and we were in a lot of trouble if we didn't protect the opium crops. And he was like, and then we come home and we're hooked on opioids and we're criminalized for it. You know, it's like the same opium Mm -hmm. is like farmed out and fed to the soldiers that have PTSD. It's like, it's just a very weird thing to actually step back and look at. And if you were over there and you felt like you were constantly in danger and there was just all these opium yeah, poppies around you all yeah, the time, exactly. all you have to do, I mean, it's really simple. You just scratch the edge of a, a opium poppy and the drug just comes out. It's like a, it's kind of almost like a cartoon. It's one of the only drugs in nature. It literally comes right off the plant and, and the, the almost the purest form of the drug that you need comes right out almost like a nectar from it. Yeah, it's amazing. Soldiers probably just start doing this all the time. Yeah, why why wouldn't you, dude? It's not like a peyote like you had to like you tried to blend a giant peyote leaf into a fucking yeah. blender and drink the whole thing. No, it's it, you just scrape it off and you get fucked up. Yeah. You get stoned. Now, in Afghanistan, hash is probably very prevalent too when you're growing all that much weed all the time. I mean, that's in some cases more common to find over there in the Middle East than than dry weed. They, oh they yeah, no hat. Oh my God, it's so much more powerful hash. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Unlike most drugs, I mean, I remember when I was in Colombia, the epicenter where they make coke, and I was like, oh my God, I was like, I'm surrounded by coca plants, and then I just tried to eat some, and the guy that I was with, he's like, that you're not gonna get high. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you, you're absolutely not going to feel anything at all. And I was like, well. It's like caffeine at the most. Like, Yeah. It was just like nothing. It was a complete waste of time going there. I'm <laughs> just kidding. It was a total waste. You can still buy um, cocoa tea like on Amazon and stuff. They still oh, sell. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand how it's still, why they can still sell it. Yeah. I mean, just could... one of those weird loopholes. It's like Kratom. I mean, I, what what is the status of Kratom? Kratom is still legal and- it's very popular now and it's like I see it I hear it advertised on all these podcasts now and apparently there's even now Kratom vapes which oh, sounds weird. actually dangerous to me I've heard of people like having like a, you know eating too much Kratom because there's nobody really knows what's like no, that's the, the overdose thing is like level you have to take is. a lot yeah but like if you can vape it then I feel like you might you might you could overdose I don't know if there's an overdose level to it where you can actually die but i mean i'm assuming there is it's because it does seem like it is some kind of quasi opiate that hits a certain the same receptor so those are like the only drugs that can kill you you know besides like alcohol and downers that's really disturbing i did not know that um let's wrap up this podcast robbie by talking you know we started it by talking about tulsi and how we feel vindicated you know her tweets are getting increasingly more and openly Islamophobic. I know she always has been like this, but she was putting the mask on for a bit during her campaign. Because I did look at her talking about Islam. And even though she was criticizing Obama from the right and talking about how torture is good and all that with the ticking time bomb scenario, she still was like, we shouldn't blame Islam, da da da. Like she still said some of that shit to try to like tamp down on her openly Islamophobic past. But now it's like mask is fully removed, thrown in the trash. This is who she is. Um, everything she is tweeting over the course of the last couple of weeks is basically jihadists are evil, hateful. Um, talking about open borders is a very serious security threat, basically lambasting Biden's quote unquote open door policy, which literally is the like if you look at his immigration policy, it's pretty comparable to Trump. 
Like, he's not really doing much different. And so she's all over Fox News basically saying Biden has an open-door policy. It's very, very uh, dangerous. But but going back to the Islamist ideology stuff that she's just constantly hammering about, um, you know, 9-11, for example, she wrote, quote, let us never forget that it was the Islamist ideology which inspired the terrorist attacks and declaration of war against America on 9-11. And it is this Islamist ideology that continues to fuel terrorist attacks around the world and is the foundation for so-called Islamic countries like Pakistan, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia's discriminatory policies against Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, dot, 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 dot. And then she goes on and on and on. This is posted on the 9-11 anniversary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane for so many reasons. What a horrible thing to tweet. I mean, this is... Yeah. Can I just say something, too, about... I yeah. mean, I saw a little bit of a shift happen when all it took was Tucker Carlson actually... And it seemed like he was trying to hand her a softball. Tucker Carlson, you know... He's a little bit more clever, I think, than even – I don't know. At this point, I honestly don't know what she's trying to do. Like it's gotten we- really weird. It's not yeah. even just mask off. It's like what? what is she trying to do? How is she trying to brand herself right now? But Tucker Carlson, last time he had her on, he threw her a softball about that horrific drone strike which killed mm-hmm. like – was it 12 people including a bunch of kids or mm-hmm. something like that? It was, it was probably even more than that that, that was uh, under Biden's administration. And Tucker like handed her this softball, setting her up to be like, "Yeah, this is wrong." You know, he, basically he he wanted her to just say, "Yeah, it was wrong. Uh, this is why the U.S. military shouldn't be over in the Middle East doing these kind of things." I mean, because that's like his sort of boilerplate, you know, generic anti-war talking point framing. And instead, Abby, what did she do? She actually fucking disagreed with him and said no. Like she b- literally brings up again the Islamist ideology. And says that, like, there's a reason why we need to be, like, doing this. You get to lie about the loss of human life. You get caught and nothing happens to you. What kind of system is that? I mean, this kind of accountability is critical. I want to point out first that anytime there are civilian casualties in war, it is tragic and terrible. War is a terrible thing. and, And I think it's important for the American people to understand that, Islamist jihadists are continuing to wage war against us. And the Islamist ideology, not the same as the religion of Islam, but this Islamist ideology, which is a political ideology that inspired the terrorist attacks on our country on 9-11, is, is the greatest threat that we're facing right now in this country and the world. It is the foundation of governance of so-called Islamic countries like Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia and and Pakistan. And it's what's behind the discriminatory policies that they have in these countries against Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists and others. So as long as these Islamist jihadists are waging war against us, We have to work to defeat them militarily and ideologically. And militarily, we have two choices in how we do that. Number one, we can continue to invade and occupy and nation build in countries around the world, just as we did in Afghanistan at great cost. Number two, we can take a targeted approach using airstrikes, using our special forces to go in and go after these terrorist cells. She presented two options, Robbie. She said, would you rather be invading with ground forces and fully occupying doing regime change or the uh, the only other option to that, Robbie, because we need to impose our will militarily on the rest of the planet with a 
a gun to their heads is drone strikes. Don't you understand? It's so fucking weird, dude. It's like, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, people gave us a hard time for like not constantly going after Bernie's foreign policy, but people don't understand. Bernie never presented himself as being anti-war. It was just like a lesser of two evils thing. It's like, it's like, yeah, like I'll probably vote for Bernie in the primary, but the fact that I mean, he's, he was never presenting himself as anti-war. I knew his foreign policy record was bad. And I, you know, and that was the frame that was coming from. But Tulsi ran as an anti-war candidate. So for her to actually, like, disagree with Tucker and apologize for drone warfare <laughs> and it's go to the right of Tucker Carlson on Fox News. I mean, what does that actually say? Yeah, he gave her a real easy layup, dude. And she fucking bumbled that shit hard. Because Abby and I were actually honest about it and we wouldn't let go of it and we wouldn't back down from this, paid campaign employees of hers went after us and were, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sort of alleging any conspiracy that she, you know, that they were paid to go after us or anything like that. I'm just saying that's how sad it got. That's That's what I'm saying. Some of these people could have been on the clock working for Tulsi Gabbard to try to actually smear me and Abby, including even clipping videos, which is actually really pathetic because it's like all she had to do was explain, here's what my position on torture is now. This is why I used to think about torture on then. Here's my position on Zionism now. This is why I was on stage at the Christians United for Israel event with Netanyahu uh, and getting an award from Rabbi Shmoli five years ago, but this is why I've changed my mind now. She didn't bother to do any of that, and it was almost just like she was just hoping no one would challenge her on any of these weird changes, that rebrands that she did. I mean, Bernie didn't do any of that. He was always sort of a wishy-washy foreign policy guy. You know, he never, like, went from being, like, a Zionist, um, weird Islamophobe, like, neocon, and then, like, all of a sudden tried to pretend like he was anti-war. <laughs> well, the, the, the reason that she didn't recant any of her previous beliefs is because she still believed them. That's that's she what's so weird. It does them. seem like she do, did. Yeah, like the torture thing. I mean, the fact that she can never really answer or provide a coherent response or even the hawk on terror but dove on regime change thing, to me shows that you're right. She really did, in essence, believe in like a neocon frame. I mean, and even this some of these- drone strike apology was exact the perfect example of that because it was the first time I've really heard her address the argument for drones since that whole hawk on whatever. Yeah, man. War on terror, dove on regime change. It's like, well, okay. So that actually reflects that she does think drone war is okay. I mean, oh, on some level. 100%. And and Abby, tell our audience a little bit about what that weird latest tweet she did was. And I, I have to admit, and this is going to sound maybe a little macabre, but when I saw that tweet of her standing on that rocky, like mm-hmm. look like a like a, a a beach surface, like a rocky beach. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly thought for a second it was like piles of bones. I was like, what is this picture? <laughs> is she wearing like an Indonesian like militant, like military, like death squad, like outfit, stand on front, like on the top of like a pile of bones? And then I did a double take and I'm like, no, she's not. But it is a really weird picture and thing that she tweeted. Now tell us what it was that she tweeted because I'm kind yeah. of just still scratching my head over it. Okay, so there's two tweets. Uh, one of them was the one that you're talking about, where she said this past Independence Day has been special for me. I was deployed to the Horn of Africa. 
working as a civil affairs officer in support of a special ops mission to go after Al-Qaeda-affiliated jihadists. Holy So basically saying she was assisting a special ops mission. I don't know if this was night raids, drone operations, uh, secret assassinations. Um, She's basically saying she's very excited to be a part of the special ops unit. And, Robbie, she was just promoted to lieutenant colonel on the 4th of July. She says the ceremony was quiet and informal. No fanfare. Oh, great, Tulsi. Just a handful of fellow soldiers present and an opportunity for me to reflect on the great privilege I feel in wearing the cloth of this country, a deep appreciation for the freedoms we cherish, Holy and the solemn Christ. oath to defend those freedoms I've committed my life to. Hashtag freedom in all caps. Uh, according to Mike, the next promotion up is colonel. Then... A general. You're almost there, Tulsi. You this are is a almost sick there. Joke. Keep going, girl. Like you can be a general in a couple of years. And this pile of bones landscape that she's on looks like she's either in Djibouti or Somalia. Um, because she's talking about being in Africa. We know that there's a secret drone base in Djibouti. We know that there's a ton of special ops going on in Somalia. So I think that that's pretty much where this like top secret, you know, confidential mission that she's on is is transpiring because she also had another tweet where she's just like aloha you haven't heard much from me lately as i've been gone for the last four months on an active duty tour and deployment to africa as a civil affairs officer supporting a special forces mission to go after al-qaeda affiliated jihadists like sorry um hey by the way guys you haven't heard from me lately i've been helping kill people in africa by the way i'm anti-war Bye. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely off the rails fucking crazy to think for the last two and a half to three years, the left has stood by and let Tulsi Gabbard, Tucker Carlson, and someone like Sagar Jetty actually achieve any form of credibility or influence anywhere even near the sphere of left anti-war. I mean, it is unbelievable to me only one of the three that i have some forgiveness for is tulsi gabbard because i can understand being taken in by the thing she was saying that people wanted to hear i I understand it when she started talking about the new cold war and russia and all this stuff i remember even myself thinking like it sounds like she watched a very heavy agenda or like someone's writing her talking points who's like really tapped into this this stuff and and it's it's weird because i don't necessarily trust that she means it it just seems like someone smart in dc or something is like feeding her talking points who's like tapped into like alt media stuff and as soon as i got that vibe i'm like this feels weird and i don't trust this anymore the fact that she never could answer for any of those things and the fact that like jordan Cheriton of status quo was the only person to like press her on it and she still really didn't provide a good answer though when i say press her on it, i mean like the torture and hawk on terror comments. And I think you're right, Abby. Ultimately, she does believe in it. And how crazy is it that she actually developed such a following in the anti-war movement and that she actually took a bunch of people down with her like the Titanic? There's a bunch of cultist sort of Tulsi people still who believe in this weird thing about Islamic radicalism. They, they're obsessively talking about it still. They'll even say that you're Hindu-phobic for calling out her Islamophobia. It's like, dude, that's not even a thing. She's like totally like fucking manipulated, dude. Like, how are you even saying the word Hindu phobic? Like, you've gone nuts. This is fucking crazy, dude. So anyways. The three 
cast of characters that you just outlined, it really just shows you the rot in the discourse and just how detestable liberalism, like in terms of this woke ideology, <laughs> like like this superficial tokenism that has defanged all revolutionary potential and radicalness, basically. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Tucker Carlson and Tulsi, it, it it's very sad, but it just shows you how how lacking, how sorely lacking any sort of coherent anti-war ideology is, and people just gravitate toward rhetoric without understanding how destructive it can be when it's, you know, used in conjunction with something like anti-China bashing or, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's really, I think it's a lesson learned for a lot of people, hopefully. And I, and I have heard from, from dozens of people who said, you know, I, my eyes are open now and I'm kind of looking at the future with a more critical lens. And, and that's a good thing ultimately. So all we can do is move forward. All we can do is move forward, but I do think people need to realize the urgency in some of this stuff. You can't stop a fire after it's grown too big. It's too late. It's like, look what happened with Russiagate. You know, for two years, I felt like I was screaming into an empty void about, you know, those new Cold War stuff. And then all of a sudden, two years into it, it becomes this thing where like Greenwald starts talking about it and other people finally start talking about it. But by that time, it was honestly kind of too late. They didn't educate people enough beforehand, and they sort of jumped on it, I think, too late to make a difference. And of course, we have a lot of critiques about the way that some of those people talked about it, but I feel like this is the same thing. This is getting really bad really fast. And the China stuff, if people are realizing it now that we were on this you know, at the appropriate time, then good, but you really got to get on this now. I, I guess my point is that it's not a joke anymore to think that, oh yeah, like Tucker Carlson is giving people like this giant spotlight and it's great. It's exposing these, these left liberal or sorry, these left views to a, a millions of people. His audience is going to influence his audience. Honestly, the way I see it is that what it's done is it's basically created a weird open lane, this sort of backdoor, not saying it's conscious or not. I just know that the effect of it is there's some kind of gentlemanly agreement where a lot of these sort of bigger leftists who want to get booked on Tucker Carlson, refuse to criticize him or say a single critical word about him on any of their outlets or platforms or websites. And you can see the evidence of what I'm talking about that out there. It's very easy. Just do a control F or search for Tucker Carlson. You won't find it. And you'll see the reason why. And it's sad because ultimately he is basically one of the biggest influencers when it comes to not just the anti-China stuff, but also weaseling his way into this you know, anti-war world and gaining credibility. And, and that's, I think that's dangerous. The combination of the two together are dangerous. And it just, I, I'm just shocked that all this stuff has just happened and no, no, barely anyone said anything. And, and here we are just like, now we're talking about needing to defend against the impending attack on Taiwan. We're going to, we'll get into that on the next episode because that's a whole other subject. Well, thank you so much everyone for listening to Media Roots Radio. It's been a doozy. You can't get away without saying that word. Uh, watch out for that last step. It's a doozy. It's a doozy, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please consider becoming a subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Right now, a Masonic series is still going. That's probably the last bonus episode we did. But right now, if you are if you become a subscriber to Media Roots Radio, you get access to one bonus episode a month. And you also get access to a research tool that we're putting together that 
you can interact with while listening to some of our recent 9-11 and Anthrax podcasts. So check that out. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.